Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are going to be talking about Centers of Progress, our interview with Chelsea Follett. Ron, how's it going? Very good, Ed. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, no, really looking forward to talking about Chelsea's work. Let's read her in so we can get started. Chelsea Follett is a policy analyst for the Cato Institute and a managing editor at humanprogress.org, a project of the Cato Institute that seeks to educate the public on global improvements in and well-being by providing free empirical data on long-term developments. Her writing has been published in Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Newsweek, Forbes, Business Insider, National Review, and the Washington Examiner. She was named to Forbes's 30 Under 30 list for 2018 in the category of law and policy. Chelsea's book, Centers for Progress, 40 Cities That Change the World, is the subject of our conversation today. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Chelsea Follett. Thank you so much for having me on and giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. Well, first thing, I'm just going to issue a pre-apology that at least once during this conversation, I'm going to call you La Follette. And Ron and I have a dear friend who goes by La Follette, and every time it's been in my mind. So I'm going to try to make sure not to say that. But um, both Ron and I are, are followers of, of uh, Jonah Goldberg. And anytime that he has an author on, he asks what he says is his favorite question to be asked when he's on a book tour. And the, that question is, so Chelsea, tell me what your book is about. I like it. Straightforward. So has managing editor of humanprogress.org. I spent a lot of time thinking about progress and the conditions that drive it. And that simple question of where does progress come from inspired this book, Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World. And it is a sweeping intellectual and geographical tour of the world, as well as a tour through time. Like most history books, it is ordered chronologically. It goes from the beginning of permanent settlement and the advent of agriculture all the way to the modern day and the digital revolution, featuring each of the 40 cities in bite-sized vignettes, easily digestible. Each city is featured during a moment in history when it contributed notably to human progress in some way. Well, why this book and why now? Great questions. The book began, as we were talking about before we started recording, uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so it was a nice mental tour of the world, researching all of these cities when travel in reality was severely restricted. And it was also a time when people started questioning the future of cities because with remote work and so forth, people have started to ask, will the long-term trends of urbanization reverse? Will we start to see more people live in rural areas? I don't have the answer to that, but regardless of what the future holds for urbanization, the role that cities have played historically in promoting human progress is nonetheless worth celebrating and investigating because if we can identify the conditions that allow a city 
to thrive and become a center of progress, of innovation, then that may hold the key to fostering innovation in the present and future. And there's a couple of themes that the book talks about, and I'll get to that in a second. But first, I wanted to ask you regarding the number 40. Was that um, was that biblical? Was just 40 days and 40 nights? Was that was it a number you had to put, push to try to get to, or was it hard to trim the list down? It was hard to trim the list down. We could have easily gone to 50 cities, but it already is a pretty thick book, so that's why we stopped at 40. The number itself is fairly arbitrary. But although it is a thick book, it is jam-packed, filled with facts, and it's even being assigned at the university level. We know at the University of Toronto, for example, they're assigning it in classes, and it's being assigned in high school classes. There are free lesson plans available online to accompany the chapters for any teachers listening today that may be of interest. But even though it has all of this information, it's also very readable. Each chapter is just a few pages. Again, these are short, snappy introductions to different cities that have changed history. Well, I hope that my my daughter is just finishing up a human geography class. So uh, unfortunately, it wasn't out in time for that. But maybe future AP geography classes will will include this uh, this book. One of the things that, that you've done in the book is each city is noted for a particular contribution. How did you come to that idea? Was that just something that emerged organically as you were writing the book? Yes. Yeah, so most of these cities were selected in a way that was reverse engineered. I began with a list of different aspects of modern life, of modern civilization that we so often take for granted. Everything from a stable food supply and sanitation to writing. And I found that many of these innovations could be traced to a particular origin point. And those origin points were almost always cities. Even in the era when the vast majority of people lived in rural areas, Nonetheless, it was cities from which we so often saw new inventions and innovations and just impressive achievements of all kinds emerge. And even before there were cities by our modern standards, the largest gatherings of people that did exist at that time, the closest equivalents to cities that existed, tended to be the most innovative places. And as I said earlier, there's there's lots of different recurring themes, and one of them is is slavery. And um, was was that an editorial decision on your part, or again was that something that emerged as you were do- doing the the your your tour around the world? I thought it was important in all of the earlier chapters. Again, this book is chronological, so all the earlier chapters are further back in history uh, to acknowledge that. None of these places, despite their incredible contributions, would be places where a modern person would wish to live. Long ago, many cultures accepted human sacrifice on almost every major civilization uh, condoned slavery. The human rights standards of the past are nothing that we would accept today. Nonetheless, this is a remarkably positive view of the past because it focuses on the achievements as our ancestors overcame so many problems. It celebrates each milestone and it tries to find the lessons that we can learn from those achievements, even while acknowledging that our ancestors were flawed in many ways. And so let me just, just jump back to a second. I was just as processing your answer, and you said that you you actually had the 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 each, each individual uh, contribution. You, did it start as perhaps a book of contribution, and then that led to cities? So is that what I heard in your answer there? I'd be really curious about that. 
it began as, as a, an inquiry into where progress came from. So it was always okay. going to be about places, but I didn't intend for it to be about cities necessarily. And it turned into that. All of the centers of progress featured in the book are either cities or they are the closest thing to cities that existed during the era in which the place is featured. So why is that? And that gets into the first of the common themes that all of these places in the book, despite being very diverse in many ways, share in common. And that is just people. And that's why cities, rather than the countryside, tend to be the place from which progress emerges. Now, obviously, there are exceptions from the Wright brothers achieving flight in an empty North Carolina field, and they came from the rural Midwest. But overwhelmingly, it has been from urban centers or places where a relatively large number of people lived in close proximity to each other, from which we have seen new innovations, world-changing achievements emerge. And as you mentioned, that's in in, in alignment with the work of um, Marianne Tupi, who I believe is your boss, so to speak, at the Center for Progress, and also Gail Pooley, who we we both had on the show and and, and their work. But another theme that I have, and we've got about uh, two minutes before our uh, our first break is that most of these centers were of peace, not war, which kind of flies in the face of, I think, commonly accepted wisdom that it that we get we get a lot of progress at wartime. And I guess, yes, there are certain things that happen, perhaps medical advances might happen around, around the t- times of war because you've got so many casualties that you've got to deal with. But really, the, these were centers of peace. In fact, several of the names, don't they have the variant of the word peace in, in their name itself? That is a good point. They do. And yes, history vindicates this idea again and again, that it is during periods of relative peace and stability during which cities reach their creative peak. Obviously, that does go against this idea that it is interstate competition during war that drives technology forward. And one great example of this that people often give is the internet and computing technology. Some people claim that without World War II, we would not have had the internet as quickly as we did. We wouldn't have had computers. But if you look at who was working on early computing technology, they were very much divided in Germany, people like Konrad Zeus, in Europe, in the United States. And none of these people were able to work together. Even the various Americans could not put their heads together due to the secrecy required by war. And so while we can't rerun history and see what would have happened without a world war, it is possible that we would have had computing technology even faster if all of these thinkers had been able to collaborate. And then who knows where we'd be with technology today? Yeah, Uh, there are, of course, uh, exceptions. I think Paris being one of them. But but, but we're going to get into maybe talking about the individual cities in our next couple segments. But we want to remind our listeners that right now they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We'd love for you to take a break right now and rate this podcast by going to ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. Our first segment is sponsored by Bookskeeping Franchise. Check them out at bookskeepingwithanxfranchise.com. Right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. 
Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Ron, we talk a lot about business opportunities. Well, now a great one has become our sponsor, bookskeepingfranchise.com, bookskeeping with an X. That's right, Ed. If you are interested in becoming part of the $4.2 billion bookkeeping industry for a franchise fee of just under $20,000, visit www.bookskeepingfranchise.com. Bookskeeping comes with full training, plus marketing and technical support, and even staffing. Visit the website or call 855 935 2669. Franchise opportunity not available in all states. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with the author of Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Change the World, Chelsea Follett. Chelsea, I love this book. It was a great, like you said, historical romp and tour the world all at the same time but also just a lot of really interesting historical facts and uh one one thing I, what struck me is the paradox of cities i mean you even say history of cities is disease i i think about the pandemic you know killed what was it half the population of florence in the 14th century 60 percent of europe and you know there's violence there's crime there's poverty but they're also the crucibles of invention and I, you know, in the foreword, Matt Ridley wrote, you know, he, one of our favorite lines is ideas having sex. And that's a great place. Cities are a great place for that. Um, but you write that the common themes in a city are relative peace, freedom, and multitudes of people. Explain that. Because the multitudes of people, I think, is really counterintuitive. It is. Obviously, when you have more people together in one small space, they are more vulnerable to certain dangers. As you say, disease can spread between people more easily. People can also be more vulnerable to uh, military strikes if they're all in one location. However, when you have more people gathered together, you also have more choices as to who to uh, befriend, who to marry, who to do business with. You can engage in mutually beneficial exchange of goods and services. And so often throughout history, and I'm sure your listeners will appreciate this, it has been 
the entrepreneurs, it has been the business people, it has been people engaged in free enterprise who have driven progress forward, particularly economic development that then funds so many other forms of progress. And when you've got more people gathered together, you get economies of scale, you get more specialization and so much more economic growth and abundance from that. And also when you have more people exchanging ideas, debating and discussing, you're more likely to hit upon an idea that changes the world in a positive way. Yeah. I I love how you write. You say most cities reach their creative peak during periods of peace. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the third man movie from 1949, Orson Welles playing Harry Lyme, where he says in Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. React and to that cuckoo because clocks are delightful cuckoo, and they bring people joy. <laughs> when people are engaged in war, yes, they are forced to be more innovative because they are competing, but they're competing to kill one another. They're competing to take over land. They are uh, competing to dominate one another. And so the sort of innovations that are produced by that tend to be advances in weaponry and that kind of thing. In times of peace, people are also competing. But what they're competing to do is to offer goods and services that enrich each other's lives, that raise living standards, that create value. And when that is what people are focused on in their competition, they're more likely to create things that uh, delight and charm like cuckoo clocks, but also more world-changing innovations that uplift humanity in various ways. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, I mean, uh, you know, even Matt really pointed out that World War II, like you said, drove the experts apart. They couldn't communicate with one another. But, you know, um, a bingo card here at the Soul of Enterprises, Charles Murray, and his book, Human Accomplishment. And, and, I'll, and I'll read to you what he writes in this book. He says, streams of human accomplishment. Now, he's talking about individuals and you're talking about cities. And that might be the difference. But he says, streams of human accomplishment have not typically been disrupted by war and civil unrest. Peace cannot explain the trajectory of human accomplishment. There hasn't been enough peace for a good test. And he's got two pages of wars in this book (laughs) that went on through just Europe, two whole pages, and there's just not enough peace. He said, it's not that war is good for human accomplishment. It just hasn't impeded it. So I think that would even be more optimistic than saying we, we need peace. He's saying, no, no, human accomplishment happens in times of civil unrest and war as well. It absolutely can. And you can find examples of that in this book, Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World as well. Mines is a great example where war and instability during the time of Johannes Gutenberg drove out a diaspora of printmaking apprentices across the continent and spread printmaking knowledge throughout Europe rapidly. And if Murray is looking at the individual level, it's true that people can always flee a dangerous or an unstable uh, situation and continue to make progress elsewhere. But my book is looking at the conditions that foster creativity and innovation and progress. And if you're looking at what sort of society you want to create to help cultivate innovation, it seems that peace and stability tend to provide you much better odds of making your city into a center of progress than 
war and instability and chaos do. Right. That makes sense. Um, you know, after COVID, maybe even during, there was lots of speculation about cities becoming ghost towns. You know, will New York come back and, and all of that? And we've had Rabbi Lappin, Dan, Rabbi Daniel Lappin on the show. And he says something that I find very interesting. He said, cities have outlasted governments. <laughs> These cities aren't going away. Now, I know some of your 40 are no longer there. How do you react to that? Cities outlast governments in general. It is true that a remarkable number of cities featured in this book are still around in our lovely places to visit, but they're actual golden ages. They're peaks of creativity. The moment in history when each city really contributed a world-changing innovation, those tend to be relatively short. And that is probably because the precise conditions to foster progress, again, peace and freedom, can be very fragile. And one of the darker lessons from this book is that we see again and again some of the most dazzling cities in history very quickly fall apart when those conditions are lost. Some examples are Chang'an, the easternmost stop along the Silk Road, once the world's preeminent trade route and one of the most cosmopolitan and wealthiest cities in the world as a result of that free trade. But there was a backlash to that. With all of these people coming into the city from different places, there was a lot of xenophobia and there were various massacres actually along the Silk Road trade route that killed thousands of merchants from different backgrounds and different places. And the ultimate unraveling uh, came in the form of war. As the Silk Road became increasingly unstable due to violence in various parts of the world at that time, it became more and more dangerous for merchants to traverse it, and trade declined precipitously, and so did the fortunes of Chang'an. Baghdad provides another wonderful example. During the Islamic Golden Age, it was a center of scholarship recognized Throughout much of the world, people from many different backgrounds and lands would travel there to study at a place called the House of wisdom, a sort of proto-university where scholars made incredible leaps in areas such as mathematics and astronomy, but that all came apart when this city that for its time was actually incredibly tolerant and open uh, suddenly lost those features when a faction took over the city that imposed a, a much more uh, xenophobic and the sort of theocratic view of things where they did not believe people from different religions or different backgrounds could contribute to that community of scholars. Things became much more difficult. They didn't believe in outside sources of wisdom. And even the native scholars in the city saw their freedom to explore new ideas limited. And as with Chang'an, the ultimate downfall came in the form of war of conquest. It is said that the Tigris River ran black with ink because so many scholarly works were destroyed during the Mongol invasion that ended Baghdad's golden age. And today, of course, Baghdad is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Conditions for progress can unravel so quickly. And to give a more recent example, Hong Kong, featured in the book mm -hmm. for its rapid economic development, an incredible achievement during the 1960s and 70s when it went from one of the poorest places in the world to one of the wealthiest and most glamorous cities. That all we know was founded on certain principles, economic freedom, civil liberties, and all of those are now in danger, crumbling in the tightening fists of the Chinese Communist Party. And that's just another reminder that the conditions for progress are fragile 
and can be easily lost. Yeah, you even say uh, change is a constant, but progress isn't. Yes. And yeah, we're, we're we follow the story of Jimmy Lai really close here, and just the whole thing is just tragic. <laughs> um, I want to ask you: This is going to be particularly particularly interesting to a lot of our audience because they're accountants. Uric, the world's first large city and birthplace, and they you're they're known for writing. And tell us where the writing comes from. I think that while it's intuitive to people that economic freedom and entrepreneurs produce businesses and new inventions that enrich our lives, people don't realize just how many different kinds of progress actually come from economic freedom and from the private sector. So we probably imagine that the dawn of writing took place for a glamorous purpose maybe for a literary reason, to create poetry, or maybe it was to record the genealogies of kings to glorify them. But actually, writing evolved gradually due to accountants for the much <laughs> less glamorous purpose of bookkeeping. Uh, and you see that sort of uh, anecdote again and again in this book. Many people may not know that Isaac Newton's Principia, the culmination of the scientific revolution. His seminal work was actually published because of donated funds from the heir to a thriving soap business, a soap mobile. <laughs> again and again, it is funding from entrepreneurs and from people of that sort that has driven progress forward. And art is another great example of this. There's this idea in the public imagination of the starving artist that art must be created only for its own sake and a true artist seeks no reward except the creation of art. But actually, if you look at the places in history that have produced some of the most beloved, cherished works of art of all time, whether that's the classical music of Vienna or the paintings of Renaissance Florence, these cities were able to produce so much beautiful, world-changing, innovative artwork because they made art incredibly lucrative through funding and financial patronage, thus attracting talent, gathering in one place together to collaborate and compete in their cities and producing some of the most beloved art of all time. And Chelsea, I have to ask you about this. Mohenjo, Mohenjo Daro, known for sanitation city in today's Pakistan, almost all the city houses had indoor baths and latrines. The kids even had bath toys. This kind of blew my mind. Like plumbers are the unsung heroes of civilization, aren't they? Absolutely. And that's just one more example of how the book highlights some lesser known uh, cities that were incredibly innovative. The plumbing system of Mohenjo-Daro surpassed the much lauded plumbing of the later Roman civilization in many ways. And it's also a reminder of, again, how quickly progress can be lost. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, and then, of course, tell me about, we've only got about 30 seconds, but tell me about Dubrovnik, uh, known for public health, you know, the Hong Kong of the Mediterranean, supposedly, because this was interesting, too, because they were they were one of the earliest countries to ban slavery, too. Yes, as a city-state republic. They were called the Republic of Ragusa at the time. In the medieval period, they were very much equivalent to Hong Kong, this free-trading, seafaring supernova of activity. And by inventing uh, quarantine, actually, limited quarantine waiting periods, the first coherent public health response to the devastating Black Death pandemic, they were able to keep their ports open 
during the plague that was wiping out a third to half of people in so many European cities and actually achieve significant mercantile expansion at a time when other cities such as Venice had to completely close down and prevent entry of anyone into their city for a time due to repeated outbreaks of the plague. And I think that the lesson of Dubrovnik is, again, also about the importance of freedom, because this was a city that had as their flag just the word libertas, Latin for liberty, that had as their city motto, liberty is not sold for all the gold in the world. And that, as you say, as a city state, if you count that as a country, was among the earliest countries to ban the slave trade because they valued liberty so highly. And I love it. You just These are some of the little facts you pick up out of the book. But the, the, the cities in the southern Croatian region of Del, Dalmatia, is it? And that's where the Dalmatian yes. dog came from. I did not know that. So, well, Chelsea, this is great. It's been flying by. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. You can check out our Patreon channel, become a member, get, get our uh, access to our bonus shows. You can do that at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that uh, channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. Find a nine find a mind at 90 minds check their workout at 90minds.com and now a word from our sponsors enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us follow us on instagram at voice america talk radio and see what we're cooking up for you Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise and is Ron marked that we are sponsored. We're on on Patreon. If you uh, want to get a shout out there, you, you can get like Blake Oliver did at Earmark CPE. You can 
charges a certain level and we'll give you a shout out on the show. So shout out to Blake at Earmark, earmarkcpe.com. Uh, we have today with us the author of Senders of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World, Chelsea Follett. And Chelsea, I wanted to, to remain in Dubrovnik for a second. That's where, where Ron left you off. And tell me a little bit about this guy, Benedetto Cucciulli. Oh, he uh, he was one of the many innovative business people active at the time. He wrote a book called Trade and the Perfect Merchant. That was a sort of guide to uh, being a good businessman at the time that advocated honesty in all dealings with others. And so it was a moral guide to being a businessman. And that's uh, he perfectly captures the spirit of the city. There were so many innovative merchants who uh, through their hard work enriched the city and allowed it to make its incredible achievements in sanitation again and again we see throughout history it is the funding produced by economic development created by business people by merchants by ordinary people trying to better their own lives through mutually beneficial exchange that then through the creation of societal prosperity funds all the other forms of progress scientific advancements inventions great artworks even campaigns uh, for various moral issues the abolition of slavery women's suffrage all of these things are ultimately enabled by having a sufficiently prosperous society and that goes back to the sort of people who are listening to this as we speak well, and another tour stop on the tour I, I want to make, and, and this is regard to your your artwork, and and that is the the, the city of music that is Vienna, um, which also, by the way, has to be the first ever Cato book mention of my favorite artist Billy Joel. So just just kind of, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the first time he's ever been mentioned in a Cato book, but. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan too. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so, talk a little bit about some of the. the, the I mean, I I, I realized that, that Vienna was a city of music. I did not realize how many people went to Vienna specifically to do that, and was that again because of the funding that was available there for that at the time? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the Viennese court at the time uh, was competing for status through a competition involving the financial patronage of great musicians and other artists as well, but especially musicians. And that's why we saw so many of the great musical artists of the day, as many of the musical creations that are still among the most played works to this day, so many years later, all occurring in this one place, because that is where it paid. That's where it was lucrative. And that's where all of these great creative minds were incentivized to create music, to collaborate with one another, to compete with one another for the financial patronage available in that city. And we see this story again and again. Pretty much every classical uh, composer that you uh, can think of at the top, off the top of your head, if you name those sort of the top five classical composers you can think of, well, it was in Vienna at some point. Uh, but if you think about almost any artistic achievement throughout history, if you now look into the origins of the novel, the first novel is often said to be the tale of Genji created in medieval Kyoto. Why was it created? Again, it was courtiers competing with one another to funds the arts as a sort of status competition. If you look at the artworks of Florence, once again, it was the wealthy people in the city 
who were providing financial patronage and backing for artists because of the status that conferred. And in Florence, uh, they also had incredible innovations in finance that they created. And it was because of their thriving cloth industry and their innovations in finance that they were able to fund so many of the artworks that are still among the most visited in museums around the world, the most studied in art courses, and the most beloved. So this pattern just seems to hold again and again. And it goes goes very contrary to this idea that art, again, has nothing to do with money or the economy. It's sort of outside of that. People just create it purely for its own sake and don't need any financial reward. When you incentivize that kind of creativity with the funding that can only be provided by a thriving and flourishing economy, that's when you get truly world-changing art. Well, and another place where there's been truly world-changing art is in Los Angeles. And a couple of quick things. One, I was very happy to see the mention of the good, the bad, and the ugly, which of course is the theme song of this of this radio show. I don't know if you caught that, but that was that 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 opening is the good, the bad, and the ugly. But tell tell us about how, and I thought this is a really great story. How Thomas Edison influenced Hollywood. This is a little bit of a negative kind of story, but I just thought it was really really cool. Right. So there are obviously many things that the location of Los Angeles had going for it, a variety of uh, natural features that could be used as backdrops in movies, pleasant weather for the most part, all sorts of good things going for it. But probably one of the most important factors in that being the location where modern film was invented, where Hollywood sprung up, was its far distance from the East Coast Mafia and the reach of Thomas Edison, who at the time was a very litigious man who would also go outside the law famously to enforce his patents on pretty much anything to do with film. And so the only way that people could have the creative freedom to work on film outside of or beyond his reach was to go all the way to the West Coast. And that's why Los Angeles became the home of Hollywood. And anyone who has ever enjoyed a movie, even when created elsewhere, owes ultimately a debt of gratitude to uh, Los Angeles during its golden age of film for creating the modern art form of film as we know it. It's interesting because I, I know that Edison ultimately did become very litigious, as did the Wright brothers, by the way, which I find really interesting that they spent most of their time, instead of creating new stuff, suing people. It was just like, what a waste, really. <laughs> um, I, I, we only have about a, a, a minute or so left in, in my last segment here, and I want to go back to Hong Kong for a second, although you have mentioned that. Uh, and that's because one of Ron and my heroes is mentioned in the book, which, and you haven't talked about him, and that is Sir John James Cooperthwaite. Tell us a little bit, our audience, about him. Oh, he is definitely a hero of progress. There's a great book on him, The Architect of Prosperity, that I recommend, in addition to, of course, this book, The Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Changed the World. He was a civil servant, not a typical hero of progress within this book, but one who uh, actually fought not to impose restrictions or try to get his way on uh, when it came to governing Hong Kong, but rather to have the government step aside and simply allow the people of Hong Kong, the entrepreneurs, the ordinary people, 
to rebuild their city themselves after the devastating war. And the result was incredible. Simply by instilling uh, an environment of freedom, civil liberties, economic liberty, and so forth, rule of law, this city was able to achieve a turnaround uh, that is so remarkable that it is a bit of an anomaly in this book. Most cities are featured because they invented something or they represent the pinnacle of achievement in some area, such as a great form of art. Obviously, Florence wasn't the first city to create paintings, but they're considered by many to be the pinnacle of that art form. Hong Kong is featured in this book because of the historic policy lesson that we can derive from the policy of non-interventionism that Calperthwaite and others uh, enacted that simply allowed the people of Hong Kong to create the prosperity for themselves of their city, to rebuild their city. He, he he even basically said, no, I don't want to keep statistics because if we keep statistics, then they'll want to like mess with it. So let's, let's yeah, not even keep the statistics. <laughs> that was great. It's a fascinating uh, anecdote to me because you know, humanprogress.org, for those who aren't familiar with it, has nearly a thousand different indicators of well-being metrics of how well humanity is doing in different areas, literacy rates, nourishment rates, poverty rates, and so forth. And so showing whether these things are going up or down. So I actually am quite a fan of data and statistics, but I think that this uh, raises an interesting question. When the government is gathering statistics on certain things, it then can provide an excuse for bureaucrats to try to meddle, to change how those metrics are looking. And so Calberthwaite actually did uh, spend a lot of time trying to fight his fellow civil servants and uh, government officials who disagreed with his approach, preventing them from interfering with Hong Kong's rise, with Hong Kong's economy. And part of that was preventing even the gathering of statistics that he knew they would use to justify unnecessary, overly restrictive economic intervention. Well, let's hope, just hope that maybe he's going to be an influence on Javier Malay down in Argentina and, 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 and can turn things around the way they did in Hong Kong. But we are up against our last break. Want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes, previews to upcoming shows. We also mentioned our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can see hear, hear the show commercial free, as well as our bonus episodes that we do each week. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chelsea Follett and her wonderful book, Centers of Progress, 40 Cities That Change the World. Chelsea, I've been to 13 of the 40 one of which was Wellington. I'm pretty sure New Zealand is what the Lord did on the seventh day. I'm I'm pretty convinced. Um, Tell us why you put Wellington, New Zealand in the book as one of the 40. Well, it's all related to the all-encompassing yet non-controversial definition of progress that I was going for. Anything that almost everyone would agree furthers human well-being. So much of the book uh, talks about material progress, different inventions and innovations, such as plumbing, which we've discussed, that better our lives. Uh, Parts of the book talk about artistic achievements that enrich our lives in another way, that give us happiness and fulfillment. And a third form of progress that the book also mentions is moral progress. Now, obviously, some people disagree on what exactly constitutes moral progress, but the chapters that deal with moral progress in this book are the chapters on the abolition of slavery, suffrage for women, and the advent of liberal democracy. And these are things that no matter where you are on the political spectrum, no matter where you are ideologically, pretty much everyone in the United States uh, hopefully agrees are good things. And Wellington, of course, is the city featured for suffrage. I think that our uh, education on the history of suffrage in the United States tends to focus on the fight for women to have the right to vote here. But actually, the first country to grant women the right to vote was New Zealand. And that was thanks to a campaign centered in Wellington, their capital. And it's a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And then you point out too that the UK didn't grant suffrage until 1928, France in 45, and Switzerland in in uh, 45, I think it was, or yeah. was it 71? And one of them was 71. But it it just it's kind of amazing. Um, then you also wrote, and I wanted to ask you about this. You wrote by practically every measure of human well-being, ranging from sanitation to literacy to average income, China was superior to Europe in the 12th century. Now we've had Deirdre McClowski on a couple of times and big fans of her trilogy, you know, bourgeois. And she talks about the California school and it's called that, I guess, because most of the scholars are from California that point to China for like everything. And they actually take that superiority up to the 16th century, they say. And a betting person back then would have put their money all on China 
to do the industrial revolution. What do you think went wrong? Again, I think this shows us how fragile the conditions for progress can be. So uh, we're talking about the Song Dynasty right now, of course. This is often considered a golden age in China's history. Many scholars, as you say, uh, believe that living standards were higher there than in Europe at that time because of all of the wealth and the prosperity that they enjoyed. And Hangzhou was the most prosperous center of all of this economic development. They had uh, all sort of proto-factories. They are considered by many to have come closer to initiating an industrial revolution than any other society up until the actual industrial revolution that ended up happening in Europe. So what did go wrong? Well, uh, they for a time were incredibly innovative and they were uh, very open to exchange. In fact, they had such a high level of economic exchange going on that the heavy metal coins of the time weren't cutting it. It became simply too much to carry these sacks of extremely heavy coins around at the level of exchange that they were conducting. And so they were the first to create paper money, uh, which they printed en masse. And uh, this just demonstrates how prosperous they were. They invented many other things as well. Uh, but of course, there were downsides to this invention too. And also we have to remember at the time, uh, being prosperous, unfortunately, because there was not this norm against uh, against invasion, this norm of respect for borders uh, that we uh, have seen in more recent years, although it is, of course, occasionally violated, being a wealthy society uh, made you a target for conquest. And so Hangzhou was conquered uh, by uh, Mongols. This is sort of a theme in the book too. Mongol invasions happen surprisingly often in history. And uh, there's an interesting story there in the book where uh, those who took over Hangzhou uh, said, you know, this paper money thing is a great invention. Why don't we just keep printing more and more and we'll be really wealthy? This is a great idea. And that's when humanity first experienced inflation. And they didn't understand what was going on. They thought, well, for some reason, we're not getting wealthier. We should just print more. Maybe that will fix it. And uh, you can guess how that turned out. So that's uh, an amusing, but uh, one of the more terrible moments in the book uh, for humanity that is featured. So that's where they got modern monetary theory. <laughs> not very modern. Uh, Chelsea, I'm 35 miles north. Of San Francisco, your last city, mm. and you say it's a city of extremes. Its golden age has ended. Totally agree, and totally love how you put it in there because, of course, it needs to be celebrated for bringing us the digital revolution. But what do you think will be the next center, great center of progress? Like if you had, if you had to add a forty-first today mm -hmm. to the book, where would you choose? That is such a great question. You see again and again in this book that fairly obscure and small towns no one's heard of can rise up to become great cities that take the world by storm. No city starts as a city, right? Um, Amsterdam was once a small fishing village. And then it became uh, the starting point of that incredible liftoff, the great escape from poverty, what Deirdre McCloskey calls the great enrichment. That's really where that incredible, unprecedented takeoff in wealth began. And no one would have 
necessarily predicted that. Edinburgh, uh, the center of the Scottish Enlightenment of Adam Smith, uh, so many important things came out of that. Modern social science, economics, again, a very small, obscure, inhospitable locale, not someplace people would have pegged for the next great center of progress. So I don't think it's easy to predict where the next highly innovative center of progress will emerge. But I think that by looking again for the common themes that we seem to see popping up again and again throughout history, people, uh, you know, growing population for the city, uh, economic freedom and other forms of freedom and peace, we can get a good idea. My organization, Cato, uh, recently updated their Freedom in the 50 States report. I'd say if you're looking for a city that you think will be the next thriving center of innovation in the United States, look at cities in uh, the top five freest states, the states that are open for business, that provide the freedom for the entrepreneurs and for the creatives there to try out new things, to experiment, to create and to increase their prosperity. And the jobs that they create will attract more people, creating that population growth that is common to so many thriving cities. And also look for a culture of openness. One candidate that people have mentioned to me uh, for a, a potential next great center of progress would be Austin on the grounds that they have this saying of keep Austin weird and a, a cultural openness to new ideas, including controversial ones, I do think. That can be very valuable because, uh, again, if you can't discuss a diversity of viewpoints, if you don't have true intellectual diversity, you're just less, less likely to hit upon a new idea that does change the world for the better. Yeah, that's great. You, you know, you end the book with discussion questions, and I'm going to ask you one. Which of the 40 would you visit in its heyday, assuming you had proper health vaccines and all of that? But which of the 40 would you like to visit? That is the big assumption, isn't it? Uh, so yeah. I think it would be pleasant to very briefly visit a city like Florence or Athens. But again and again, those early chapters of the book have a line uh, repeating some variation of the line. A modern person would not wish to live in this city, despite its many contributions in whatever area that city is featured for. Because again, in the past, there was so much slavery, so much human sacrifice, so many medical disasters, uh, and such a primitive level of technology, such poor hygiene in many cases, even among the nobility, no modern person would want to spend any significant amount of time in the distant past. And what's wonderful about living today is we can view the paintings of Florence without risking contracting the Black Death. We can walk the roads of ancient Rome, many of which still survive, and far uh, better roads as well, without slavery needed to build them. We can enjoy team sports without human sacrifice, such as in Chichen Itza, where team sports began. And uh, so ultimately, I'm happy to live in the modern day. And I think that's another uh, lesson from this book that we have a lot to be grateful for. Absolutely. Amen. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much. What an honor to be able to talk to you. It's a wonderful book. I wish you the best with it. We hope we sell you some or sell some for you by appearing here today. Ed, what do we have next week? It makes an excellent Christmas gift. Uh, next week, Ron, we have our annual holiday with Greg, a conversation with Greg Kite. Oh, geez. Never know what to expect with him. All right. I'll see you in the 167 hours. Thank <laughs> you.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.